welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. And me, Reverend Terry Menevigal. Just a quick word before we get started, there will be spoilers here. As we talk about the entirety of the Outlander book series, meaning all eight existing main books and then the short stories and the novellas, we will mention significant and, well, not so significant plot developments throughout the series. We could do an entire episode on whether or not this series can be spoiled, but if you haven't finished it yet and want to discover the drama as it unfolds for yourself, then we suggest you finish the series as soon as possible. Well, as if you need someone to tell you that. (laughs) And then come back and listen to the podcast. Either way, we'll be happy to have you. And now for the episode. All right. Welcome back to episode five of Outlander Soul. Mm, Yay. So exciting. We've had four episodes where we've talked about nothing but romance genre (laughs) and and romance theology. Let's get into some actual talk. Enough about about romance. Let's do something different. Yes. Yes. Let's do something very, very different. (laughs) So, but what we're doing here at Outlander Souls, we're talking about the series Outlander, mostly the book series, but also we we bring in the television series and we're looking at it through the lens of faith, religion, and spirituality. Because there's a lot of it in the books, it's a lot of it actually in the television show, and it's a very rich subject for us to look at as a substantive and generative text. Yeah, and and also, I mean, we haven't really talked about this a lot, but that Diana is far as we're able to tell is a is a practicing catholic and and woman of faith and that has obviously informed her her writing and so we want to take that seriously and see how the christian faith in diana's case but just faith in general a life an inward life is is considered in the series but before we do we want to thank our listeners for giving us feedback absolutely after every episode we have questions that we offer to the Outlander community to respond to. And we just want to get into our absolute gratefulness for the <laughs> those who've been listening. And and there's not been a, a few of you. There's been quite a few there of you been quite who've a been few listening. Mm-hmm. And those who have, have gone on and have answered the questions for our surveys so that it'll help inform our book that we will be writing on this particular subject. This is our first step into the podcast world. <laughs> And we really appreciate your patience and your interest and your participation in this as we kind of learn what our listeners want to hear from us, Mm. as well as how Outlander has affected your life, your relationships, and your community. Yeah. And we know, too, that filling out surveys can be a bit of a drag. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, uh, I do it daily. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And we do this for every episode. So how many surveys, if you listen to every episode, are you going to be doing? Yeah. We'll talk about like the ways in which you can give us feedback that isn't necessarily survey related but shoot us an email send us a voice message there's loads of ways that you can tell us what you think without necessarily having to fill out the survey but the survey is specific about questions that were related to that particular episode and things that we are specifically looking for so whatever you're able to do with the surveys we are so grateful episode one feedback we talked about seeing outlander from a theological perspective and about stories that change our lives and how those stories are worthy of mm. theological reflection and yep. worthy of a higher scholastic conversation. Other listeners who mentioned that books that made a difference in their lives, the ones that they mentioned were, say, you know, the Bible, which <laughs> has made a difference in a lot of people's lives. You'd be surprised there how many people it doesn't affect. So, hey, yeah, you know, it, we're, we're glad it was included. And in a pluralistic society, yeah. that's absolutely the norm now. Mm. So other people have said the J.R.R. Tolkien book Books, the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, those books. The Twilight Saga mm. was one. Yeah. Not surprised by that, actually. There's a there's a book that I've got related to the research that I'm doing for this project that's about the fan world of, of Twilight and, and yeah. the emergence of fan fiction. So that, I was actually quite pleased to see that, that Twilight was yeah. on. Yeah. And The Time Traveler's Wife, mm. which I feel you on that one, yeah, man. Gosh. Okay, oh, so that one ripped me apart. That one broke me into 17 different pieces. I didn't get over it for, I know, two weeks. Yeah. But see, I'm, I'm a huge time travel. You know, I, I just I love time travel as a genre. And, and we are going to do an episode about time travel. I, and Terry I promise, is, the, and is the expert on that. I'll try not that, to so. geek out so much. It's just so, so But that book, I was so in love with them. 
and it just it tore me apart it was yeah. such a good book and uh the red tent which i've never read have you not oh it's i it's, mean I, i've read the handmaid's good. tale well the red tent is based on the hebrew bible story about dinah and what's depicted in the in the hebrew bible is that she's raped and the way that story is told is that she she falls in love with someone else but that her family just goes crazy and so it's mm. it's told from her story and it makes you read that story from the from genesis very differently yeah and outlander <laughs> everybody listed outlander what would you surprise surprise has, has it has influenced many of her our listeners lives <laughs> including so, ours so, too ding 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 you got that one right <laughs> it's the only reason why we're doing this podcast <laughs> Um, talking, going back to the Twilight thing, though, one respondent talked about how Twilight had introduced her to fan fiction, but she says it changed her life because it encouraged her to write her own stories. And mm-hmm. she has written 16 to 17 novel length stories wow. so far. We wow. bow down to your productivity level, if Just nothing go. else. <laughs> Keep going. That's awesome. That's that amazing. So, awesome. so we, yeah, we hope that is a great thing for you and that it's been a great experience. And Well, and yeah. let us know those books. If they ever get published, I'd definitely like to read yeah, them. No? I read the definitely. I read the Twilight series. And while I've got some issues with the books, I, I really... <laughs> I've never read them, so I can't really say. Particularly yeah. the last book, I've got some serious issues with it, but... <laughs> Um, and, but but this is not a story about that. This is not a podcast about that. No. But I would I would still really love to read the fan fiction because I was very close to writing my own about it after mm. the last book. So mm. yeah, there's yeah, an yeah. entire world around fan oh. fiction that I feel like I have just only touched the edges of. Oh no, um, yeah, and, they really and are. And we and we can that could be an entire episode in itself is is yeah. talking about fan fiction and what that means for people. Yeah, we felt so privileged and so humbled um, by some of the other stories that people told us. Stories about loss and pain that they've encountered and how, yeah, how Outlander has helped them through it. So we'll go through just a few. Pam talked about how she's lost her mom recently and that they'd had a a difficult relationship. Uh, Those weren't her words. Those are ours. But just in summary. And she said that Outlander helped her to release her resentments and to learn to listen to her mom and that it had given her a great opportunity to experience humility and grace through that Which is just beautiful. I mean, that's just... It is. And, you know, I know someone else who... was going through a really difficult time and she mm-hmm. found she was looking for something to watch on television while mm-hmm. their their family was also experiencing loss and mm-hmm. uh and she's just like I, I just needed a place to put my brain and she fell yeah. in love with it. I think it's just I think that's really special. Uh, Judith read Outlander. She started in the nineties when Outlander came out and then laid it down and then picked it back up again after her husband's recent death. And she said that it gave her something to be interested in, something to look forward to. So which, like your friend, somewhere to put her brain yes. and somewhere to so, sort of rest in the tumult of, of loss and bereavement, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and remember how we, we talked, too, <clears throat> in one of the previous episodes about how it's almost like I've got this family that yeah. other people may not know I have. <laughs> yeah, this wallpaper of your life idea. Yeah. Another respondent, Elizabeth, said that Outlander gave her the tools and the vocabulary to explain her emotions and to be more present and aware of the emotions of those around her, which included deepening her relationship with her husband. Yeah, I think that's fascinating too, because I, I mean, one thing that we'll talk about a bit later is that how the characters, but especially Jamie, is so so emotionally intelligent or at least there's a conversation in the series about emotional intelligence you know as a theme and so that's that's a great observation and a great thing that I think someone's been able to take from it so Kathy also she says Outlander encouraged her to realize that even when great love is present marriage still takes a lot of work Mm. and and for those of us who are in committed long-term relationships Mm. We all know that it takes a lot of work. And mm. here's here's her quote. Outlander's a challenge for me because the story shows a relationship that's idealized in many ways and that's difficult to achieve in real life. It's like trying to look like the photoshopped pictures you see all the time. Mm. There's no one in my life that knows me as intimately as Claire and Jamie know each other. And I don't think there ever will be. 
still it's a comfort because they're not perfect people and yet they make it work Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's a that's something for you know me to look forward in my relationship with my husband Mm -hmm. and that I appreciate about Jamie and Claire but also it's kind of been touched on but we haven't really talked about it explicitly but that even though the story is real and we're all we're able to relate to it it is still in some ways that the Facebook version or the or as Kathy says the photoshopped version in the <laughs> yes. sense of whether or not it is achievable for some people it might not be for others right. it may be there is a a danger when we talk about expectations and kind of what you're expecting out of a relationship not every relationship is like Jamie and Claire and so we, we ha- yeah you got to be careful but at the same time to know that it is possible. I don't I don't know how to articulate that really, but the thing between fiction yeah. and reality and storytelling and the everyday bits of our lives, you know. Mm. So you never tell story about a day in the life unless you offer something really astounding that happens in that day in the life. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise it's 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 boring, it won't hold our interest. So no. what we go through every day and how we sit through meetings every day is not really <laughs> what we want to see on paper but what we do is we bring out heightened things so that Mm -hmm. we can examine relationship under a microscope so to speak and I think what we see what Diana Gabaldon offers us Mm. is the microscope and intimate look into this life between a couple that is not perfect Mm. but has got some ideals that we strive towards yeah absolutely it's funny though I had a bit of a giggle when you talked about a day in the life so in some of the outlander forums that I'm in there's always a post it seems like on a weekly basis where someone is complaining about how long the gathering is taking between (laughs) drums of autumn and the fiery cross and they're like is this day ever gonna end i have to admit that i am one of those folks i'm like see what the hell i love that i love that you know the story is just this really quick pace and then all of a sudden it's like and it goes into (laughs) this really slow motion story and all you see is like chapters that are 24 hours and 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 then it's <laughs> and then it goes back up to regular speed again. And I just, I think that's amazing. And so, no. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally get it because I'm like, will Roger and Brianna just finally get married already? <laughs> I've been waiting an entire book for them to get married. They finally get him. He's at the gathering. And then I have to go through half of the book yep. before they get married. Yep. And this is kind of how I felt about Harry Potter, the fifth book. I'm like, oh my God. Are they just going to, this, this is, okay, he's he's depressed again. And and rightfully so. I mean, somebody has just died in front of him. He, you know, faces yeah, yeah. Voldemort, the man who must not be named. And, yeah. it, it, but it, this is, it's the same thing for me in Harry Potter 5. I'm like, okay, mm. just move along, move along, move along. Yeah. Real life sometimes isn't exciting. Real life is no. sometimes hard work. Jill yeah. also, um, we wanted to include something that Jill said. So Jill told us about some of the uh, difficulties that she's faced in the last few years and that she encountered encountered Outlander five months ago and while at first because of the difficulty she says she thought that you know you could see it as that she was hiding in a beautiful fantasy she said eventually I started soaking up the character's resilience and stubbornness and every setback to Jamie and Claire was dealt with fairly some taking more time or working to get over than others but that I could also give myself permission to not bounce back right away as long as I just kept working and that I thought was a great observation too. So Jill, thank you. We were really, really yeah, thankful for that. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of how story really does. Mm-hmm. It really kind of is the glue to how we encounter the world. To harken back to some of the previous episodes, mm-hmm. it's the it's the water that we're swimming in. Yeah, and it's it's how we see what the world is going mm-hmm. on around us. So without those stories of strength and resilience, mm-hmm. how do we get by? Yeah, we need to know somebody else has done it before. Yeah, we need models. We need, uh, we need examples. That story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much for offering these insights into your life and into the way Outlander has has really changed you and so we are we are so grateful for that thank you even though we do a survey for each episode and the episode may have been released on you know whatever date we keep all the surveys open so that when you can respond whenever you discover us so if you're listening to this episode and it's 2019 the survey 
probably, will still be up and you can still tell us what you think. We've already got feedback lined up for the next episode. We will constantly sort of be feeding back now as we're going along to say what people are saying and how they're responding to it. And we want to hear your stories and how Outlanders changed our life. So you can email us, you can share with us on social media. And there's also on our Contact Us page a place where you can record a voice message and send it to us. Or you can just do a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Either way, you can be in touch. All right, so let's get into this episode. Okay, so we are on um, episode five, and uh, the theme for this episode is being a Sasanak or being an Outlander and what that means. So, Terry, what would you say being an Outlander means? Being an Outlander, and, and why the series is called Outlander, It it's an English person. You know, if you look mm-hmm. it up, online it says it's an English person but especially it's an English person who is outside of the community it's Gaelic mm. Assassinach is is the word for outlander in Gaelic mm. now personally I would love to be called assassin because <laughs> the way it's the, the way it's used later in this in the series after the first initial Jamie Claire encounter it's, it's actually a term of endearment mm. but originally as it's used and as it's used continually with Claire especially Mm. it's an insult Mm. it's somebody who is from the outside and so claire is a sasanak for for what reasons well obviously first she's english right so that you know that that's the first and foremost when people encounter her in 18th century scotland that is that's the most obvious thing right but, um, and, and, and that's not a good thing to be English no. in 18th century Scotland. Um, and if no. you know the books, then you know that you know why. But um, she's a Sasnak also for other reasons. So, okay, well, she's a bit odd, right? I mean, yes. she's, she's, she's not the, the everyday, well, certainly not the everyday 18th century woman. Um, because nope. she's not from the 18th century, okay? So she is a 20th century woman in an 18th century world. And then later, she's an 18th century woman in a 20th century world, right? Yeah, so she's always out of place. Yeah. The only time I think I ever remember seeing her in place was during the war. Mm, um, yeah, She, she yeah. seemed to have really kind of clicked into her own yeah. in I World War II. I think that's kind of her identity forming event. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. She's in her mid-20s. They go to yeah. war, or early 20s, actually. Your mm. brain isn't even developed until you're 25. So she, while she's still developing mm-hmm. as a young woman she is you know whisked off to France to be on mm. the front lines yeah and finds uh, a place to be there so we've talked about her serving in the in the medical corps in the second world yeah. war so yeah. this aspect of being a healer but also a female doctor obviously yeah. so you know the occupation of doctor is completely different in the 18th century as opposed to the 20th but yeah being a woman in that yeah and, and the healer in the 18th century it, at least in this book is identified with being a white woman mm-hmm. or, 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 a witch. or being yes yes or being la dame blanche and mm. being someone who because of their healing abilities is mm-hmm. set apart in a way and is to be feared and revered but it also gets her in trouble in Cranesmere being English being this healer who is to be feared but mm-hmm. you know secretly approached to mm-hmm. heal leaves her in the, the pit mm-hmm. <laughs> so. and later too um, in the later books she's always kind of on the edge or she's always feared yeah. and revered that keeps her from being fully included I think because she's 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 one of us, but not really. You know? Exactly. We're glad mm. that she's part of the community, but we would never really invite her to dinner type of thing. <laughs> you know? Plus, you know, she doesn't cook, so she's not going to bring a good tuna <laughs> bake or anything, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> Claire is also a little bit different because she's an orphan. Mm. Now, at yep. the time, it wasn't really unusual to be orphaned in the early 20th century but she doesn't go to school yeah an orphan raised by an archaeologist uncle named uncle lambert yeah you know and so she grows up in the deserts and yeah scraping off little things and you know lighting his cigarettes for him and (laughs) as the tv series shows yeah (laughs) the tv series and chasing his little bits all over the world kind of like um little bits Oh gosh, all the archaeologists out there just cringed. Anyway. <laughs> well, 
okay, so I'm quoting uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, oh. So Marion, <laughs> you know, is chasing her father's, you know, chasing all little bits all over the world. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and and this is Claire. You know, not only is she this this healer woman, this this English woman, but she's somewhat comfortable going to different places and being a little bit different. And then we also see in Dragonfly and Amber and in Voyager, there's an oddity to her as being English in the U.S. as well, right? So we talked about right. her being English in Scotland, you know, 20th century, but also in the U.S. And so she doesn't fit in there either. There's not many places where she does fit in. No, there isn't. And it's kind of like a normal thing for her yeah. not to fit in anywhere. So her treatment as a Sassanach, how do people treat her as a result? We talked about the kind of maybe not inviting her over for dinner, but what else right. could we could we say about her treatment? Well, Blackjack Randall tries to rape her twice. Mm. Initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he first encounters her after she falls through the stones. Is that because she's a Sassanac, though? Or because she's a woman I, I, or someone to be exploited or abused? Yeah, I, I think it's just because Blackjack Randall could. Honestly, I think there's a woman wandering the woods. She's wearing half a dress. He could take her. He's, as Diana Gabaldon says, an equal opportunity sadist. Yeah. But as a Sassanac and as somebody who has these special healing abilities, she is taken in by this, this raid troop. <laughs> the band. This, this raid. The, the band, band of, of raiding. Outlaws. <laughs> this band of raiding outlaws, uh, Scottish yeah. outlaws, they they take her in because they see her as somebody vulnerable. Yeah, um, as because she is a Sassanach in the middle of Scotland, and yeah. she is vulnerable. Yeah, and so yeah. they, you know, they they take her in and they protect her from Blackjack. And then the Mackenzie column gives her shelter at Castle Leoc and gives her a job as a healer. But she's not trusted. She's kept on a really short leash. She's watched yep. pretty much every minute of the day. Oh gosh, one of my one of the funniest parts for me in in season one is the little thing with Rupert following her and like trying not to be seen. <laughs> oh, Grant O'Rourke just did such a good job with Rupert as a character, but so that did. was so funny. Um, yeah. Anyway, and and one of the reasons they're not to be trusted is everybody thinks she's a spy because nobody knows her and she drops yeah. out of nowhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one knew her origin story, or no one believed it when she tried to tell them. Well, because it smells. It does. Yeah. She has no proof of anything, and yeah. these are intelligent people mm. who are going, "Who is this person?" And she's and, odd. <laughs> well, she's odd, and she can't lie. Or no. anything. <laughs> uh, she she doesn't have the same ability to kind of hide her emotions that mm. Jamie and Brianna end up mm. having. And mm. so, when there is something that has to be talked about that is sensitive, mm. either Claire is led for the from the room or. They just begin speaking in Gaelic. Yeah, they do. And I think that's something that's beautiful that they did in season one. Obviously, we read, especially the first book, from Claire's experience or from Claire's perspective. And season one is oriented that way as well. So they don't do subtitles for the Gaelic because they want you to feel just as excluded as she feels as a Sassanac, as an outlander. They're wanting the audience, the, the viewer, to relate to her experience. And it's only when you only see things from maybe Jamie's point of view Mm. That we do get subtitles, so yeah. you, or, or at least you get an understanding of what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And then the Sassanach is turned, turned into, into a Scott. A Scot. <laughs> <laughs> I can only get past him by making you a Scot. And how are yes. you going to do that? <laughs> I would love to grind your corn, he says. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> But anyway, so she becomes a, yeah, poor Claire. Um, poor so, Claire to save her life. <laughs> to save her life has to marry James Fraser. Damn. And have the most romantic wedding ceremony I've ever seen <laughs> depicted on television ever. And she didn't even know his name. James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just <laughs> shivers across the world. Yeah. But Claire's not the only outlander. No, she's not. She's not. And that, I think, is maybe the brilliance of this story. So it's focused on Claire as outlander. But then pretty much everybody's an outlander. But Jamie, let's talk about Jamie as an outlander, right? Yep, yep, yep. So we meet him. And before we know anything about him, he's an outlaw. And Mm -hmm. he can't go home. He can't return to Lolly Brock. No. He's been exiled just like... Claire has been. And they trust him a little more, obviously, or else he wouldn't be in charge of the horses or have any of the things that, or do any of the things he does while he's there. He's family, Mm -hmm. but they can't trust him, but so much. No. Because he's, he's not a Mackenzie. 
No, he's not a Mackenzie. And Dougal's threatened by him. And we believe that Dougal is the one who actually tries to hurt him at the very beginning by smacking him in the head. Yeah, and we only find that out later. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, spoilers, guys. One thing, too, I've seen it mentioned maybe once, but I think that the way the TV series has adapted the story, do you remember how there was a big deal about his hair length? And they had to shave his head because he had the head injury. He'd been hit in the head with the axe, and he thinks it was yeah. Dougal who has done it. And so his his hair was cut short in order for them to be able to dress the wound and all that kind of stuff. Season right. one is the shortest we ever see his hair. And it's yeah. because they assume the story he has you know like they they didn't just start out with him having long hair and they don't ever tell us if you know the backstory you know his hair had to be short at that first part when we meet him and if you haven't noticed Mm. the red in his hair changes dramatically through the series too (laughs) until they finally get the color right yeah well Not that anyway. I mind. Not that I mind. I do love the red hair. I got a thing for redheaded boys. Yeah. So. But anyway, Fraser yeah. admits the, uh, amid the McKenzie's the whole pledge at the gathering, whether or not he can do that. He can't pledge at the gathering, mm-hmm. at least not to the Laird, but he can pledge his supports. He, he was trying to specifically set himself outside until Claire stumbles upon him. And and he still does set himself outside, even by what he does choose to say. He's like, I I am with you, but I am not of you. But also as Laird and Macdo, both, he's this person, he's the leader of men, he's, you know, king of men, if we want to say. But in that, there's a distance, right? He's not included. He must set himself apart. Yeah, he have to, if you're going to lead any type of group. I mean, that's that's just part of the leadership piece. So mm-hmm. as the Laird, he has to set himself apart. Everybody belongs to him. Yeah. And in, in, in return, in a way, he belongs to them, but not in the same not way. Not in the same way, no. And I remember in Voyager where he talks about how it feels to be touched and how yeah. no one ever touched him when he was in Ardsmere because he was McDo, he was their leader. Yeah. I think that's that's an example of, of him not being included in, in the same way that others were. Jamie also has this, and, and, and several of the other men in Outlander have a sense of emotional intelligence because you were talking about this earlier. But Jamie yeah. seems to have kind of a very deep sense of emotional intelligence yeah. that you don't see with Dougal. You you don't see with Rupert uh, or Angus. You do see with Roger. You start to see, uh, Ian grows into it. So yeah, you do see it in the characters that you're sort of asked to relate to. You know, I see it a bit in Colm as well. Yeah, yeah. Colm knew what he was doing. He was aware. Yeah, he seems to have a the ability to kind of see through stuff and and then listen to that about himself. I, I don't know if that's where Jamie gets it from hmm. because they are a family, but I, I see the reflection there, a leadership reflection there. But then also other ways in which Jamie is an outlander. I mean, obviously victim of sexual violence and that sets yeah. him apart. The experience that he's had, the isolation that he feels as a result of that. It, not to gloss over it, but we could talk about that forever. But also his experience as Dunbonnet, the isolation in the loneliness that he was experiencing that way self-exile again that he had as a prisoner not just as McDo but also just as a prisoner and an enemy of the state and where that puts him in the context of life in that period or life in that era and then the last couple just he's a Scotsman among the English at Hellwater and what that means and then a Scotsman in France and then a Scotsman in the US and so just kind of never really getting to settle and be amongst his own. He leaves when he's, oh, I should know this, but like when he's 17, 16, 17, something 16, like that. I think, I think um, uh, Dougal comes and picks him up when he's 16. Yeah. Um, and to then take him to never France. really goes back home. No. Whatever home is, which we'll talk about in the next episode. So Jamie and Claire both have got this experience of almost always being the outlander. The stranger, the exile, yeah, the, stranger. The, the, the one who doesn't fit in. And Jamie may have had more opportunity to claim home when he was growing up than Claire did. But I think they both end up finding, at, at very influential times of their life, finding that they, they're self-reliant and that they are the outsider one thing that i think in like i said earlier in this story is how pretty much all of the main characters in the story are outlanders in some 
form or fashion. I, I think that's brilliant. So let yeah. kind of go through who else is an outlander and why. Hugh Monroe. Hugh Monroe. He goes off to fight in the, in the Middle East mm-hmm. and his tongue is cut out. Mm, he's maimed. He's living outside the community. Yeah, he, yep. he lives as a intentional beggar outside mm-hmm. of the community and he has mm-hmm. all of these pins these these badges that he wears Gab- gabberlunzies yeah yes that he that allows him to go and beg he In has permission parishes, to yeah. yeah 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 so he is purposefully outside of the community but he has no one mm. um, no home to, to call his own yeah i don't know purposefully intentionally did i mean it's because he had an option or did he i don't know that he has an option i mean i guess mm. he well, we don't get his backstory, really. No, not really, no. Other than he has gone off to fight battles and was taken prisoner and tortured and maimed. Mm. Of course, Jamie is taken prisoner and tortured. Yep. But has a community to come back to. So we don't know mm. what Hugh's full story is, but he does set himself outside of the community, almost like a leper does yep. in scriptural traditions. And yeah. then we have Fergus, the French yep. orphan, who's in Scotland and then goes to America, loses his hand. He's not a warrior, so he doesn't fit in with... A lot of the other men in the story. Lord John Gray. Yep. He's, as we all know, gay. He's got a sympathetic and empathetic side to him that many of the other men don't have. Emotional intelligence, Lord yes. John Gray definitely he's, has it. He sure does. And he he knows that he's never going to get Jamie. No real chance that he's got no. to be with the one he loves. And yet he, he still chooses to live in the world that he's in. Mm-hmm. And um, he knows he does not have a chance at a, quote, normal life yeah whatever that is so he's someone though on the outside at least gives the appearance or the impression of being part of a community he you know british military you know governor of jamaica he's definitely on the inside well he's a lord he's yeah yeah, he's got a very influential family but he's not yeah he's He's got secrets. Willoughby or Yenten Cho in Voyager, exiled from China, perceived in the books to perhaps be a sexual deviant. Whether or not he truly is, we don't know. But at least, you know, stereotypes are, are working against him. He, yeah. you know, is the, the only person from China that most of these people have ever met or encountered. So definitely an outlander in this case. And of course... Brianna, Roger, and Ian. I mean, those are some of the main characters that we have besides Jamie and Claire, who are also outlanders in their own right. We could just keep going through the list, but a lot of the characters are all outlanders in some form or fashion, right? If you all make a discovery of a character yeah. an outlander, let us know. Yeah. Um, we would love to know what your feelings are and some of the other characters mm-hmm. that we haven't mentioned. Uh, so, okay, how does this speak to our own experiences of being a stranger? I think being a stranger or feeling like a stranger or not fitting is a condition of being human, right? So right. I, I think that's that happens to everybody. But what what about you, Terry? What how would you describe the experiences of being an outlander or a Sassanac in your own way? Well, okay, so I'm admittedly an extreme extrovert, and I have always been this way. And so it's easier for me not to have these experiences than say some of my more introverted friends. When I was three years old, my mother tells the story. I, we were at a park with family. And I had, I was three, I learned to walk and I, I just assumed everybody was my friend and, <laughs> and everybody knew who I was. So I walk up to this group of people who don't know me and I just walk up and say, hey, it's me. <laughs> Expecting them to then stop everything they're doing and go, Terry. And oh my go, gosh, it's you. It's me. <laughs> so I generally, if I go into a group, I almost always approach the group of people as this is a friendly group. I assume I'm going to find a friend in there somewhere. Mm. This is naive, I know, but it has served me in, in many ways because mm. I, I generally look for the friendly face. I look to mm. make a connection somewhere. Again, mm. I was born this way. However, mm. I've chosen certain career paths that have put me directly in the way of being a Sassanach when I wasn't expecting to be. So I, I majored in math in school. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yes, I majored in this. My undergrad is in math. And so the majority of the people I'm working with are, are young men. Mm. And I don't think before I got to college that I really understood the fact that I really wasn't in the male community. I, I just assumed that, you know, everybody would just accept me. But it, it wasn't until puberty that I realized that, hey, it's really not that way. And even going forward, when I did some engineering work for the local power company here, it was really obvious 
when there were only a few females in there and me going out to a construction site as a five foot two strawberry blonde <laughs> who wore a size two. Um, and and I, I think I weighed 103 pounds dripping wet to, to, to come up against the 300 pound guy who was just like, I'm just not going to listen to you. Well, you were Brianna, only shorter. <laughs> yes. That's why I love Brianna so much. <laughs> Oh, and why so I love didn't get locked in any dams. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I love I love reading about what she does and how she invents things because when I was when I was younger, that's all I, I I loved doing that kind of stuff. But in the male world, I didn't really have a family that knew how to navigate those waters. Mm-hmm. But I did have my dad, who was like, mm-hmm. "You can do this. You're as smart as any man. You can do this." And mm-hmm. you've got the fortitude to do this. And my mother, same thing. She was like, you know, don't listen to them. You, you do what you need to do. As an actor, yeah, well, with all the Me Too stuff out there, of course, that's happened to me as well. I've lost jobs because people have propositioned me on set. But, but there, there's a more insidious thing that's out there. And I, I just, I just want to read a, a quote from the Women in Film website, womeninfilm.org. Of all the writers in popular film, only 13% of them are female. Mm. Of all the producers in film, only 21% are female. And of the directors, only 4.2% are female. And this is important to know because when you're looking at a story and women represented in the story, we are always outlanders. Mm. Because the majority of the stories are written by men. The majority of the stories are directed and produced by men. And therefore, we are just the sidekick we are just the love interest the stories are not about us Mm -hmm. and about our feelings Mm -hmm. and about our experience this is why the diana gabaldon book is so important to me yeah because this is about uh uh, and this is told from a woman's point of view as a minister as a female minister in a a tradition um, in which i was raised there's always the opportunity for me to be an outlander as someone who is ordained but truly there's always the opportunity as a person of faith to choose intentionally to be an outlander so that we do stand with those who are on the margins, those who are like Jamie and Claire who have Mm. experienced sexual violence or who are not trusted because Mm. of their accents. And Mm. so that's our opportunity to say, hey, I've had this experience in the past. And so I'm choosing to step into the experience again Mm. for the reason of standing beside. Solidarity for for their experience. Particularly as we're talking about walls, Mm -hmm. and at least over on this side of the pond, as we're Mm -hmm. talking about throwing people out of the country, and and by we, I mean somebody, not me. It's happening here too, by the way. Those conversations are happening here in the UK too. It's not, that's not a uniquely US thing. I'm so fearful for that. To see the resilience in Claire and Jamie as they do this for other people, as, as Jamie did this for Claire to stand beside her, and as Claire does this for Jamie often to stand beside him to protect him from the English. You have this great example of what it means to stand beside, to be yeah. the paraclete, to stand beside someone. And paraclete is, it means Holy Spirit in many sense. It's Greek. So what it means is to stand beside. It's the, the God that stands beside. For me, I feel like I've the Outlander theme, I think, is probably one of the main reasons why I love this series so much because I relate to it so much. I feel like I've always, always been an outlander. Um, Isn't there something in sort of normal sort of child adolescent psychology where the kid starts to think, well, maybe I was adopted because I don't fit in with you people kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I I never grew out of that or I always, (laughs) always felt that way. Wow. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just kind of the way it was. I said maybe, I think it was the first episode. I've lived overseas quite a bit now. And and did the math. I've lived overseas now in well in Europe, Bosnia, Croatia, and the UK and Northern Ireland for more years as an adult than I've been in the US. And so wow. this perpetual sort of experience of being the outsider, being the one who's observing this thing that's happening in front of me that I'm not a part of really as far as politically here in the UK I mean I'm not a citizen so I can't vote and so I feel a bit powerless as far as that goes but it just also the same sort of stuff with you uh, same with you as far as gender goes you know choosing occupations and choosing jobs that I'm just not yeah I'm not a man and so it just yeah just don't fit in and then theologically so you know both of us have talked about how we've come from conservative backgrounds and then come out of it going well what the hell um and then (laughs) and then becoming you know feminist theologians and that puts us on the margin for both 
good and bad reasons. You know, on the margin in the sense of, you know, people don't tr- don't trust you. You must have a political agenda or something yeah. like that. Or, gee, we, we actually might be fighting for something called equality. Um, <laughs> and then we're on the margins because that's, that's where God works. That's yes. where interesting things are happening and where power is challenged and where yeah. a different type of life is able to be seen. And so for me, in some ways it feels I've gotten there by default. Like it's just happened and I haven't really had a choice. And then in other ways, I've completely had a choice and I've chosen to be on the outside. And so not to turn it into a therapy session, but that is <laughs> the experience of being a stranger, of being an outlander, the conversations around community and home that we are talking about in this episode and then in the next episode are really important for me. Yes, yeah. So when we're looking at our faith and religious traditions, so even Mm -hmm. if you aren't affiliated with any specific religion, religion tends to have influenced our culture. So let's look at some of the religious traditions that are out there regarding outlanders regarding the stranger mm. who comes into your midst <laughs> this is this is just my <laughs> this, yes jamie I've just happens to have written this. a book about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah this this really gets me going so forgive me if i turn a little preachy i'm gonna try really hard not to no i'm excited um, <laughs> So yeah, my book is titled Safeguarding the Stranger, The Theology and Ethic of Abrahamic Protective Hospitality. And all that, to break it down, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and the way in which they encounter the stranger and the imperative to protect or safeguard the stranger is what I have looked at. And and that's because because all of those traditions come from Abraham. They all come from Abraham, yeah. So they all see Abraham as being the patriarch or the the founder of their faith. Um, Maybe not the first one, but certainly the first one that formalized it as a faith. So we all come from that one faith. We all come from that faith. different traditions. Yeah, Yeah. if we're Jewish, we're Christian, or if we're Muslim, we all come from Abraham. We might come from different progeny of Abraham, but Abraham... Uh, is is the first and the foremost. Yeah, and and Abraham is held up as a model, the model, or as a uh, an example of someone who provides hospitality without reserve, who just embraces the the stranger who walks into the door, who gives them the best of what he has to offer who entertains them for what is probably an entire day. We read that story and sort of gloss over the fact that it's going to take an entire day to cook a, a calf. <laughs> yeah. And we just think sort of, you know, Sarah puts it in the microwave and there it is, but it's not. No, um, no, no. So Abraham himself is an outlander. He is not from that area. He is tenting. He has set up his tent in, in this particular spot and provides hospitality to strangers in the land uh, who approach him. There's a connection to, and and again, I'm not going to launch into a sermon here, but there's a connection to Abraham's practice of hospitality in Genesis 18, Mm -hmm. and then the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is Genesis 19. The next chapter is they're in hospitality. So it's not, you know, I know some people are going to disagree with this, but Really, when you look at the text and you look at what the prophets say later, Isaiah and Ezekiel, the sin in Sodom is not homosexuality. The sin in Sodom is their inhospitality to the stranger, to the poor, and to the needy. Those that are on the margins, those who don't fit in, those who are at risk, and those who are in need of protection, that they don't provide that. That is the sin, not gay sex. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm also, I'm working on an article right now on Sarah. So we don't talk about Sarah a whole lot. So Sarah was Abraham's wife. But I'm also looking a bit at Hagar because I can't read the Sarah text without looking at Hagar. And Hagar's name means stranger. Yeah. So we don't even really know if that's really her name or if it's just and the stranger was given to abraham to have a son because sarah was childless the outlander was given to abraham the sassanach was given to abraham yeah yeah wow isn't that amazing or something i'd never really thought about before talking about names terry you've 
You wanted to say something about Moses, right? What happens with Abraham gets echoed later when the people of Abraham end up in Egypt. Yeah, well, the entire story of Abraham is almost reversed in Exodus. Exactly. So you've, you've set up this whole story where Abraham goes down to Egypt because there's a famine, but then he right. comes back out, where then in yeah. Exodus they go because there's a famine, and oh, wait, they don't. They get, get put into slavery. So it's, it, yeah, it's yep. an interesting reversal of the story. So Moses, you know, has been living as adopted son of mm-hmm. the Pharaoh and kills someone and is on the run. He's now an outlaw. Mm-hmm. Does this sound mm-hmm. any way familiar? Mm-hmm. So yeah. he's, he's an outlaw and he goes into the land of, I believe it's the land of Midian. He marries and he has this, this son and he calls him Gershom. And the reason is because he says, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. So yeah. his son is even named this because the Israelites are this wandering people, the one and mm. because their father was a wandering person, mm. never really someone who had a, a land until of course much much later after Moses leads them to this this land, which Moses never sees. Never sees. He never gets some into silly it. thing he does. I yeah. he, I've never really quite understood <laughs> that one, but and that's a text that I would I would draw attention to God if I if I if there is one and if I ever meet this God, <laughs> I will be what the hell? Well, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> he does all this amazing stuff, and you put it in balance against this one thing, and he doesn't get to see it. That's just you know yeah. wrong. So okay, so he names his son Gershom, which means mm-hmm. you know I'm a I'm a stranger in the land. So Leviticus talks about when the alien resides with you in your land, you shouldn't oppress them. The alien should reside with you and be a citizen among you. You shall live the alien as yourself, or you. We're aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, so this constant theme that's throughout. Yeah, it's in the Torah, but it's also in the prophets as well. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, elsewhere of this whole, you be kind, you accept, you include, you work out, you look out for the rights of those who are on the outside because you know what? You used to be on the outside too. Remember, yeah. Remember, absolutely. you were a slave. Remember, you were an outsider. You were a Sassanach at one time. Yes, and and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, mm-hmm. all of them come back and say, "Hey, you didn't do this. Mm-hmm. There, you know, the the whirlwind's coming, man, because yeah. you did not do." And, and and it's not, "Hey, you didn't worship me the right way." Mm-hmm. It's not, "Hey, you didn't do." For for these particular prophets, it's mm-hmm. specific to this is how you treated people in particular the people who are vulnerable. And the moral code throughout the Hebrew Bible, if you're going to look for something specific that, you know, continues to be consistent throughout the text, it's this. This is the most consistent moral ethic throughout the Hebrew Bible is treat strangers with hospitality, with respect, with kindness, with protection, with providing their own safety for them. And you see this with folks you don't even expect in the Bible. So Mm -hmm. Rahab, Mm. Oh, I love her story. It's in Joshua. It's the prelude to the Battle of Jericho. Mm. Um, the people of Israel are marching into the land. They're trying mm-hmm. to take over the land of Canaan. And mm-hmm. they get to Jericho, which has these huge walls. And in one of the walls is a prostitute. She mm-hmm. lives in the wall. It's debatable as to whether she was actually a prostitute, prostitute or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's been translated she, as that, but we don't really know if she was or not. But anyway. She is a, she is a woman. Yeah. <laughs> who, who may or may not be a prostitute, um, who who invites these men to stay with her and provides hospitality to them. Mm-hmm. And they're strangers. They're spies. Yeah. And she knows uh, their lives are at risk. She knows yes. that they'll be killed. Yes. And she brings them in. She's not Israelite. And she ends up being one of the ones who is the beginning of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So mm-hmm. she's very important in the Old but Testament. But she wasn't an Israelite. No, she she not. was a foreigner. She knows what it's like to be a stranger. Yeah, David and Abigail. Abigail knows David's coming, and she knows that her her husband's in trouble, mm-hmm. and so she sends out food and beverage and food and beverage, <laughs> and then comes to him offering as much hospitality as she can because she knows that her husband is not a hospitable man Mm -hmm. and she knows that this was a a huge benefit for her and the christian traditions too you know um which i am i i'm a hebrew bible geek so i spend a lot more time (laughs) too in the gospels but you know where jesus talks about you know foxes have dens birds have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head jesus as an exile jesus as an outlander as an yes yeah and continues to be one i mean he's always Mm -hmm. seeking out a 
lonely place. He's always kind of mm-hmm. on the outside looking in. And then as the leader of his disciples, he has to be set apart. And for those those who believe in the Trinitarian tradition, he's mm-hmm. set apart by his specific divinity as all human and all God. He is physically, emotionally, spiritually a very different being than we are. But Jesus very specifically tells folks, and in, it's particularly in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is very much about welcoming the stranger and about making sure that those who are on the outsides and in the margins, those who yeah. have got leprosy, those who are crippled and are no longer considered clean in the uh, Hebrew tradition, those folks get included in the parables. But there's one specific parable that really puts a finger on it, and it's the parable of the sheep and the goats and it's a hard parable to read because Mm -hmm. the the sheep who are on the right do all these amazing things for people and these amazing things are you went to visit me when I was in prison you fed me when I was Mm -hmm. hungry you took me to the doctor when I was sick and you welcomed me when I was a stranger welcome Mm -hmm. to the kingdom of heaven and then he looks Mm -hmm. to the goats on his left and says hey you didn't do any of these things you did not welcome the stranger You did not Mm -hmm. feed me. You did not Mm -hmm. clothe me. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You are now the outlander. You are thrown Mm -hmm. to the outside. You are put on the outside of all that is our community. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard parable to read. That parable challenges me every time I have Mm -hmm. to preach on it. Isn't that an amazing thing, though, that in order to be included in the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is to practice inclusion? It reminds me of what my mother-in-law always said. She's like, I'm a very inclusive person. I'm a very tolerant person, except for people who are intolerant. (laughs) Yeah. I absolutely get that because, so how are you to have a community if you have the intolerant in your community? Mm. How are you to have a community if you have people who are exclusive in your inclusive community? That's a difficult question. And not to cop out, but we we don't have enough time to talk about that. (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) But but that's a good question. It's a great question. It's you know, for our, our listeners yeah. who are out there to, you know, maybe yeah. kind of mull on that a bit. And two, because I think it's important, and especially when we talk about sort of religious literacy and inclusive communities, to become a bit more aware of the Muslim tradition as well. So when we talk about hospitality, I think currently... Muslims do it a hell of a lot better than Christians and and probably Jews as well, but certainly better than Western Christians do. The etiquette around hospitality is so much stronger. And of course, it's informed by culture. You know, we can pick that apart. But the point where it came into the Muslim tradition is influenced from the Bedouin practice, where you would provide hospitality to a stranger who approached your tent because you're in a desert condition. And if you don't invite people in, you are consigning them to death right Mm. so you bring them in and they you have them you entertain them you feed them you give them water you give them a place to sleep for three days before you even ask who they are or why they're there wow that is the ethic of hospitality within the islam tradition that that, where that's come from and then out of that they set up legal codes to protect the stranger and minorities within Muslim communities of people called the Dimi and these were the protected people or people who were minorities that they saw at risk and so they set up structures in order to protect them. Now it wasn't perfect and I'm not being an apologist here but Christianity certainly hasn't been perfect in this way either. Judaism hasn't been perfect in this way. No religious tradition has been perfect, right? But as far as legal codes being set up, Islam's done a lot more around that issue than others have done. It it almost reminds me of the rule of Benedict in a way. Yeah, yeah, it Um, is. And the Benedictine monks who were obviously informed by not only the Christian tradition, but also the Crusades. But the rule of Benedict is if somebody comes to your door, even if it's Mm -hmm. late at night, even if it's raining, whatever, Mm -hmm. you let them in. You provide them shelter Mm -hmm. no matter what. Well, and the Benedictines understand that as you welcome them as if they are Christ. And so it's based in the sacred text, but it's Christ is at your door. It doesn't matter if they, you know, are abusive. It doesn't matter if they do all kinds of horrible things. They are still Christ in disguise. It, It reminds me of the Hebrews verse uh, in in chapter 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The idea that you are now met with someone who who you are now responsible for. You you are now responsible for the person who is in need in it and at your no matter what. And two, just kind of last point as far as Islam goes, the Quran talks about how God or Allah has made us all different so that we can know one another. And so it's this understanding that just as there are so many different facets to God, Islam 
has a tradition where God has 99 names, right? So there are so many different facets of God. And therefore, there are so many different facets to people too. And so knowing and encountering different people is a way to experience God in, in new ways. And so it's this understanding of encounter, this understanding of hospitality and welcoming the stranger because they will teach you something else about God that I think is just beautiful and I yeah. wish we could recover that within Christianity or at least Western Christianity I'll say there it does yeah. exist but Western Christianity is lost yeah it. Eastern Christianity is a little more well I mean mm. and 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 truly because they live in close proximity to so much of the Islamic traditions mm. as well as the Jewish mm. traditions they, they they tend to see brothers and sisters in a, a much yeah. more inclusive light yeah. So why is this important, Jamie? Yeah, why, 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 is why is it important? important for us to, at least from a religious, spiritual, and theological lens, to look at what it means to be an outlander, what it means to be a Sassanach, a stranger? At the risk of sounding really simplistic, I'd say it matters because if you do it properly, it can change the world for the better. I, I think that's amazing. It's, yeah. it's simple and not simple at all. If you do it properly, and by properly, I don't mean perfectly. You're going to, and this is something I do in workshops or talk about in workshops quite a bit. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. Someone's going to get offended. It's going to, you know, like there's, there's just no way to do it perfectly, but you can do it properly in the sense that you are committed to it. It's a practice that you, you say, right, this is what God expects of us. This is what a person of faith is called to do. And then beyond that, it changes people's lives. When you have an encounter, a truly genuine encounter where you have heard someone, where you've recognized them, when you've seen their face, you know their name, you know their experience, and you connect with them in a way, it transforms you. It changes you. It changes them. The world's a nicer, kinder, better, more just place when that happens. And, and here's the thing with that. Because, okay, so relationship changes you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it changes the other person if you enter into a relationship. And this is where I think there's the biggest fear is that it will change us as a community. Oh, God, yeah, that's scary as hell for people. Yes, you and, don't and, want to encounter somebody different because it might actually change your worldview. You exactly. might actually start to see things differently. Exactly. And that's a, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I won't quote it right, and I apologize. But the best way to learn how to not be a bigot is to travel. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, you get to see other people's traditions and you understand and you get to be the Sassanach. You know, so I, I think there's so much fear out there of knowing that you're going to change. And I'm just, you know, I, I know we're running a little bit late, but I, I went to an evangelical fundamentalist independent Baptist church school for, and I've said this before, for nine years. I went to one of those high schools too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was from kindergarten through eighth grade. So it was very formative. And one of the things that the leadership at that school wanted to instill in us and make sure that we did was that we only stayed around and we only became friends with Christians who believed what we believed. Yeah. Not just Christians, because they were afraid of people like Episcopals and Methodists and Oh, Catholics. yeah. They're not real Christians. They weren't real Christians, apparently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hated to tell them I've got cousins who, who were Catholic <laughs> and they were most assuredly real Christians, whatever that means. So they, they were very, very afraid Mm-hmm. of us going out and, and making those relationships because they knew that the relationship would change us and then they would lose their power. And, and that's why later I, I sought out those relationships mm-hmm. because I knew that it would change me and I knew that it would change me in ways that I believe and I still believe that God wanted me to change. Same, same for me. I mean, when I was living and working in Bosnia, I was I was actually there as a missionary for a couple of years after the yeah. war. And so I was supposed to be planting churches. Not that that's oh, necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, it's yeah. supposed to yeah. be converting people, right? And Right, right. And so I encountered some of the holiest people, and they were Muslim. And I was yeah. like, how do, how do I, how do I tell them about Jesus when... I think they are closer to God and how I see them living their life than some of my colleagues. And how dare I say that they don't know God? I think that became a really important, informative experience for me in realizing the experience of being an outlander in the sense that I don't know what they've been through. I don't know their inner life. I see the outside of it 
and I need to just let let that be. I don't need to make them like me. The the point is not to include them in in my story. The point is to figure out how I can be included in theirs in some way. Um, yeah. The only way we really understand is by reaching into the margins or by going into the margins ourselves mm-hmm. or by allowing ourselves to be in the margins mm-hmm. that we that we really find those moments where it, it informs our, our religious and our spiritual lives as well, our faith. It informs yeah. our faith. And those margins don't have to necessarily be cultural. They could be around, you know, we've already talked about gender margins, but oh, also yeah. around sexual minorities, uh, LGBTQIA yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of situations, experiencing that, uh, whatever whatever that might be. Obviously issues around uh, race and color, ageism, disability, injury, abilities just in general. All of those ways in which you can explore margin and try to see things from someone else's perspective. It's really valuable and really necessary and formative for a mature faith, I think. Yeah, because there's danger living in the margin. The the, the margin is there for a reason. Yeah. And, and it's there because, you know, we have a whole community and there are exclusive people and there are inclusive people. There are, in, there are, there are exclusive people who live in exclusivity. Mm-hmm. And then there's those who are on the margins. And so there's danger in the margins. Mm-hmm. And we know this from just, you know, watching the news, Black Lives Matter, the fact that there is a school to prison pipeline for mm-hmm. people of color, the, the fact that there is danger for women in the Me Too movement. Everywhere we go, there is danger living in the margin. Undocumented immigrants. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the bullying of the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. in schools and the mm-hmm. fact that there's a much higher rate of suicide for LGBTQ and sexual minority youth yeah. than yeah. there is for anybody else in high school. The opportunities for people living in the margins to be whole are much fewer as they struggle to survive in these margins, mm-hmm. which is why the Gospel of Luke, I think, is so important as Christians. If, if you're out there and you're a Christian, Jesus continually points to the margins. Mm-hmm. Jamie is describing how the Islamic traditions are pointing to the margins, mm-hmm. how in the Jewish tradition, the Torah is pointing to the margins, mm-hmm. that this is, in in some theological traditions, where God lives. Yeah. Liberation theology and feminist theology both would say that God lives in the margins, that God prefers the margins, that there's a preferential option for the person on the margins, for the people on the margins, and that we need to approach the text from the perspective of people from the margins to be suspicious of what, you know, what is, what is this text really saying? Is it, is it supporting power or is it subverting power and when Uh, somebody tells you well this is the way we've always interpreted it yeah this is the way we've always done it who does that support and who is we really important questions yeah so let's talk about our survey questions for the end of this episode obviously they're gonna (laughs) they're gonna be related to being a sasanak or being on the margins right so um so the first question would be we'd like to hear from you tell us about an experience you've had of being a sasanak of being on the margins, of being an Outlander or on the outside. It's a human experience. Everybody's mm-hmm. got one. Also, has Outlander the series influenced how you think about and interact with people who are different from you? If yes, how? Oh, I look forward to hearing those responses. And then because we know that there's going to be some experiences here that aren't going to fit into any sort of form of question we could really think of, We just kind of want to hear from you. Any other observations, any other thoughts that you've had about what it means to be an outlander and what it means to be a Sasnak that you'd like to share with us? We're just looking for your stories and and how you relate to this theme within the series. So we want to spend a little bit of time talking to you about how you can support us. If you've read sort of our bios on the website or you listened to the first episode, then you know that both Terry and I are busy women with several jobs each and we are squeezing this (laughs) podcast in uh, into what is really already full plates so from the listener feedback we know that there are a few of you at least out there who are catching each episode and who are responding to what we're doing and it's it's been meaningful for you so if you're in any position to support us we would really appreciate it. If you click on the support us button at the top of our website, which is outlandersoul.com, it'll take you to a list of things you can do. 
you could support us financially through Patreon, starting at only a dollar a month. So if you like what you hear and want to pay $12 a year and want to help us grow, we'd really appreciate your investment in our work. Yeah, and we have different levels of support too. So the first would be uh, Mrs. Fitz, who sort of just, you know, keeps things running for us and is the the (laughs) engine behind the scenes, to the Myrta level, to the, you know, the right-hand man sort of level. So, you know, you can choose which one you want, depending on the the amount of support you want to give us. But the amount that you give us, however much it is, will contribute to us being able to invite guests onto the show. We've got a few people that, that we want to have on who are really interesting and doing some really interesting work around Outlander but also to have a sound editor so that it allows us to record a bit more and we've also thought about doing get-togethers and so that would enable us to spend some time to do the admin to make that happen. And we want to give a shout out to Lynn who is our very first patron at five dollars a month. Give it up for Lynn and we just so appreciate this. I know great things are going to happen the more patrons we get. You can also listen to the podcast now through Stitcher or Radio Public, and you'll find the links on our website. We get a few pennies for every listen, so if you can't afford to support us through Patreon, this is a great option. So choose Stitcher or Radio Public if you can. You can also review us on iTunes. I know if you're a regular podcast listener to other podcasts, you hear this all the time, but it really matters. So when you review us, it helps us to reach more people because then iTunes uh, spends more time publicizing our podcast. And so if you're able to review us on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. You can also spread the word about Outlander Soul on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, share our posts tell all your friends we just want to get this out there as far and as wide and as broadly as possible we appreciate whatever help you can give us so please think about ways in which you support us and and we'd love to have you another big announcement is that outlander soul is going to fraser's ridge well (laughs) not really but sort of close we're going to be at the wild goose festival which is being held in hot springs north carolina which is close to where Fraser's Ridge would have been. And that's happening on the 12th through the 15th of July. I, Jamie, am doing a workshop that's separate from Outlander Soul at Wild Goose. And Terry is joining me so that in case we do have any fans or any people who are there who are Outlander folk, then we can, we can have a chat with them and see what we can do. If you're interested in the intersection between faith, art, social action and you'd like to meet us have a chat we'd love to see you go to the wild goose festival in hot springs north carolina Mm. you can get your tickets for the festival at wildgoosefestival.org and if the cost is prohibitive for you but you really want to go they're also looking for volunteers so if you can't afford a ticket you can sign up to be a volunteer and if they accept then you might be able to get in for free so check with them about attending or get your tickets and we'd love to see you so let us know if you're coming so we can have chats. So that's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, as it helps people find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Just click on the Support Us button at the top of the page at outlandersoul.com and every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, and ideas. Part of the work we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. So we're interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) So please respond to our survey questions found on our website related to this episode or follow the links on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or via our website at outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Bye.